Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to Dwell, conversation for homeschool moms by homeschool moms. I am Karen Kern, and here today with me are my co-hosts, Renee Mathis, and our guest, Anne-Marie McCollum. Welcome, ladies. Good afternoon. Hi, Karen. Hi. Um, So a few episodes ago, we had Anne-Marie on, and she was talking about her passion for teaching kids about nature and science and getting outside. And briefly, I just listened to it this morning just to get it fresh in my mind. We talked about forest schools. We talked about the importance of nature and it is how we get to know God, how it promotes attention and uh, inspires wonder and how we can observe even in a very small space, God's mysteries. We talked about how um, getting outside gains, uh, encourages our children to gain in strength and confidence and opportunities to assess risk. And she talked about some questions when we're dealing with um, younger students outside. What do you notice? What do you wonder? What does this remind you of? And so we wanted to have her back today to talk about, in particular, um, teaching the older students. So first of all, how is it different teaching older students to these younger ones who are so naturally curious and inquisitive? How do we approach this with older ones? And is it really different? Good question. I would say um, that obviously, yes, your your goal here is maintaining that curiosity and, and joy and excitement younger ones naturally have. Um, so a lot of emphasis on exploration. Um, as When I approach uh, science and, and nature study with older students, um, I, I have to shift my own personal mindset. Um, Andrew Kern has over and over shared stories about the idea of compartmentalization and subjects. And I think this really applies in science um, heavily that we it, it tends to get boxed off and, and we don't intermingle things. And students sometimes think, well, this this is science and this is not. 
And I think um, probably that has contributed greatly to a lot of our great cultural debates of today, um, where we're struggling to battle understanding things because science is just moving forward so quickly without any conversations about um, should we do things. We're, we're, we're always pushing, can we do things? We don't always stop and ask, should. So um, I try to balance all of the instruction with the constant conversations about those ideas. We're not just learning facts and information. We're, we're relating ideas and connecting them. So when my students are studying anatomy, we're also reading Frankenstein. And we read some books uh, related to uh, organ donation, because that's a big topic I like to discuss with students about thinking through these ideas, because I don't want to just equip these kids with the knowledge about the human body. I want them to think about the human body as made in the image of God, right? So relating back to that. So that that would be the biggest thing is I'm spending more time really thinking about big ideas with students and not just observing. Obviously, with younger ones, those ideas come up, but they're observing all the little things and wondering. With older students, that, that is, that, that's where I'm going to prompt them more is, you know, what, what can we see here? Should we, you know, can we do this? What can we do here? Should we do this? Those kinds of things. So, so last time you mentioned your three questions, noticing, wondering, and being reminded of, and you mentioned that there are other um, many more questions for older students. So are those, is that what you're talking well, about? Well, so I have a biotechnology or do you have another list of questions? I have I, the list of questions that I like to use with older students. We still always use the, I notice, I wonder, what does it remind me of? I think those can be used forever. I use them all the time. I, sure. But we also use some questions, which are very, um, I would say related to the five common topics. I Got these questions also from John Muir Laws, who the I wonder notice reminds me of questions come from. And they are looking at, and he frames them as the five W's and an H because he uses those who, what, where, when, how, and why. But they're within a framework of, so who questions really relate to the topic of definition? Who is this thing that I'm looking at? What is its identity? And so if we're observing a tree, we're going to observe those definition questions, those who, who is this tree? Basically, who? Um, and then what is a relation question? So more connected to the topic of relation, a cause and effect type of thing. So what's happening here when I'm observing this tree? What's happening? Um, what, what happened before, what happens next, what might happen? I'm theorizing ideas to the future. Um, the where W is related kind of to circumstance in the five common topics. So the idea of, um, location, place, what's going around on around, um, the, what, what is interconnected and happening at, you know, around this, this particular tree, um, when is also a, a circumstance question. So those kind of connect to of, uh, you know, if I'm observing the limbs have fallen, when did those limbs fall? Oh, there's, there's fungus on this tree, on this fallen limb. Did it grow before the tree, before the limb fell, or is it coming after, you know, kind of those types of questions. Then the how 
is looking at, at how things work. So form and function, how, how do the roots spread? How, how do they push through the ground? How does, um, how does the branch fall? What, what caused that? And then um, finally, his why question is looking at um, why did something happen? So whatever I'm observing, I'm, I'm kind of asking questions about why. The confusing, the trick with these is don't get caught up in the words that your question has to start with those words of who, what, where, but they, they group a topic or an idea. And by gathering, so when they're younger, they're just looking at those first three. When they get older, we may observe a phenomenon and they go through those questions and, and make all those notes. And then they can go back and look at their questions and say, is there, are there any of these we might be able to answer, find a way to answer? So you're provoking, giving them a context for generating questions and then moving them into, okay, how could we discover an answer? What could we do? So then we're moving into that scientific method of trying to come up with a, a way to answer this question. And then they, they start to generate their own ideas. Can I set up an experiment? Can I, you know, what, what is it that I could do that might help me to specifically answer one, maybe just one of the questions that I've generated? There, it, I, I, I can give you the, there's a really nice little layout in John Muir's Law book that goes through that will, that is very helpful <laughs> that I highly recommend on nature journaling. And he just walks through very easily how to write those questions out with your students. And then they just get in a habit of running through those and then moving forward and kind of coming up with their own. Okay. Remind us the name of that book again it, and spell his name. John Muir Laws. The book is How to Teach Nature Journaling. And he just offers a lot of very simple processes that start with the observation and the attention and then move into thinking and questioning, and then taking that next step of what can I do to figure this out? So really actually promoting them developing their own scientific methods, processes. So, How, how do you spell his last name? It's not John Muir, the naturalist. It's John Muir. Correct. It's L-A-W-S. He's named for John Muir. <laughs> but yeah, his last name. Okay, John Muir Laws. Yeah, last name is Laws. <laughs> That worked out well. Gotcha. So, Anne-Marie, okay. can you um, tell us, I hear you talking a lot about the natural sciences and anatomy and nature and so forth. So, um, maybe we, can we clarify, I mean, are there areas of science that you don't wish to teach or prefer not to teach? Are you okay with outsourcing? Because I know as homeschool moms, we know we can't always do everything ourselves. And I was happy for my husband, the engineer, to teach physics to my kids. So, Tell us about your science areas. Yes, I definitely outsource um, physics and chemistry because I'm fortunate to have a mother who has a master's degree in physics and was a teacher for 15 plus years. So that's her love. And she's always wanted to teach that to my kids. So I'm happy to let her do it. I like to focus on, yeah, that the natural history, the nature and biology. She, she doesn't want to do biology. <laughs> she likes the theories. She doesn't like the, the, the blood and guts. <laughs> so I, um, yes. And, and 
it's lovely to be able to do that. Uh, we, I have taught, you know, at a lower level, some of that using, um, Sabbath mood homeschool curriculum is a really friendly one for parents who want to tackle, tackle that themselves. Um, and it's helpful, but yes, I definitely outsource the physics and the chemistry because I do not, I do not feel up to tackling those. Well, I mean, you mentioned blood and guts and I was happy to outsource the biology, frankly, because I didn't want to dissect something on my dining room table. But um, since obviously you're comfortable with that. So how, how would you encourage homeschool moms who are a little squeamish about, do I have to dissect something if I'm teaching biology? So I would say, no, you don't have to at all. Uh, you know, you can learn so much through observation and you don't have to dissect. I have found it is a thing that students absolutely love. Um, and so I do do it. Um, if it's something that makes you squeamish, there are great YouTube videos that you can just pop that on and, and, you know, you get, you order a little kit, you can order very inexpensive little dissection kits, but I, you know, it, you don't have to do that. I think illustration is probably the best tool that you have um, when it comes to anatomy. So my students this year, we are focusing on human anatomy. And so as we look at each part of the body, we've, we've been doing the brain right now. So I use... Um, it's based on the Gray's Anatomy textbook, a coloring book that has really beautiful illustrations. And my students are expected to draw that. And they, they're supposed to spend 15 minutes a day practicing drawing the brain and labeling it and understanding those parts. And their exam will be to have, uh, they'll pick three or four parts of the body that we've covered and they will have to draw them for me. Because to me, that that shows a good understanding of the form of these are eighth and ninth graders so they've done um i always start with with the naturalist foundation um so they've read we did um we do a lot of reading uh the sand county almanac we do reading of things like aristotle's history of animals the parts of the physiologus um writings from audubon and darwin and john muir and wendell berry and that's my foundation for what, it, what does it mean to be a naturalist, a scientist, an explorer, an observer? And then we move into um, focusing more this year. It, it's human anatomy. Our entire theme for our, our school picks a theme every year. And so our theme this year is image and likeness. So everything is, is kind of pulls back to being created in God's image and likeness. So we, we're spending time on our human anatomy this year. So, and I have eighth, ninth, yeah, eighth and ninth graders this year. It varies, you know, because I cycle through, they might be 10 or 11th graders, depending on who, who it is. Cause we'll, we'll spend some years focusing more on botany, some years on the anatomy and always that foundational, I try to get them kind of all of that natural history understanding when they're younger. So. So you've, you've pulled together basically your own curriculum, it sounds like. Kind of. I mean, I rely heavily. I rely heavily. On, my, my foundational year, yes, is, is very much pulled together of, of original sources. 
Um, I, I took a, you know, a natural history book and, and sort of looked at, okay, what is, what is the historical order of things and, um, pulled sources for them. So I did put that all together myself. Um, the anatomy I work through, I do rely on, uh, Sabbath mood homeschool for some structure, um, their little downloadable, um, topical sort of, okay, looking at the brain, looking at the different parts, it helps me to, to form a structure for myself. But then, as I said, we read Frankenstein. We read when we, because we're doing the brain right now, we're reading, um, the story of Phineas Gage, fabulous story (laughs) about a man in 1850 who had a, um, he was a railroad worker and, you know, I'm talking about he his uh, tamping iron, this big three foot iron tool exploded up and went up through his cheek and out out the top of his head. And he survived. And um, so huge amounts of our understanding of the brain have come out of just I mean, it revolutionized things in a lot of ways because people couldn't believe he lost parts of his brain and he was still alive. So we read those things and kind of look at, at that discovery of of what they were learning at that time and what we know now and what we still don't know (laughs) so I try to interconnect a lot of that like I said very um interdisciplinary in a sense I that's I hate that word but (laughs) have you thought of putting all that together and making it something accessible for other people you know, it sounds like a really great curriculum well I would I am always happy to to I used to be really um proactive in laying out when I, when I put things together like that, I would, I did try to blog about what I was doing and blogs kind of have gone by the wayside these days. Um, but I'm always happy to yeah share how I structure things. Um, it's, it's a hodgepodge a lot of times. And I feel like it, you can, I can offer a lot of structures and you can put together a lot of ideas, but what I've so much of it, bins depending on where our focus ends up might shift from year to year. I mean, I'm teaching this anatomy course for this. Let's see. I taught it, I think three years ago, two or three years ago to a a different set of students. And I mean, it's a whole different experience, obviously. I I mean, we are reading some of the same things, but so, I mean, there's a structure in the sense of the questions I'm asking and the things that we're reading, but it's, I mean, you know, when you, you've got a whole different group of, of people in front of you, you may end up in a whole nother world. Well, but it's a great example. Of, yeah. You know, someone who once you know how to teach, you you know how to pull together materials that serve you and serve what your goals are with your students. It's not you're not at the you're not, you know, at the whim of some curriculum writer over there because you're the teacher is the curriculum, as we say all the time. Right. So you you are deciding what um, what things will best serve your purposes. I think I think that's (laughs) that is the most profound thing I learned through the Cersei Institute. Um, Took me about 15 years um, (laughs) of waiting for somebody to tell me exactly what curriculum and how to do it. And and then finally coming to understand it wasn't about that. It was about me as the teacher and, and how I had to learn to be and to teach, not which books I use. And obviously there's better books than others, but it really very much is um, how you're approaching it, asking the questions. And also I think we get into this trap 
which maybe, you know, in saying that everything's connected, I know when I first started teaching, I loved the idea of unit studies. You know, I wanted everything to connect and I, I wanted to pull all these things together. And um, I was cautioned over and over against that. And of course, that's just very, um, in a sense, antithetical to the idea of, of classical education. And when I finally let go of trying to force those connections and, and that I was going to pull these things together, um, I realized it's there already and I don't need to force it. Um, it amazes me all the time how uh, the science of relations, as Charlotte Mason puts it together, that everything is connecting and uh, attempting to force it usually is worse than just letting it go and, and letting our students make all those connections and see how everything relates. Um, I, I, constantly bringing in one of the things, you know, if you're a parent homeschooling, then you know everything that you're doing with your students. So it's easier for you. You can, you know, you know what history book you're reading, you know, what poem you're studying, all those things. And, and you can wait to see those connections if you're in a school group, I do think it's important that your teachers are um, communicating so that you're at least aware as a teacher of what your other teachers are are, are talking about and reading. So in our, our group, our core humanities book right now is Paradise Lost. So the teachers are reading Paradise Lost as well, because I know my high school students are reading that. And even though I'm not teaching it to them, I'm teaching biology and I want to know what they're reading in Paradise Lost so that if connections come up, I'm prepared for that. So, Do you have any favorite um, sources or resources as far as like science equipment? Because I know that's another thing that did we just go to a catalog and order a microscope? Do we even need microscopes? I mean, what, what do we need to teach science at home? I think the first and best tool is um, a hand lens. Um, I have, I, there's all sorts of kinds. You can get them off of Amazon. A jeweler's loop um, is it's a small little six, $7 tool used that jewelers use to look at diamonds, you know, look at their gems and it magnifies usually by 20 or so. Uh, I start kids with a jeweler's loop at five years old. So is that stronger than a magnifying glass? Like what we would typically call a magnifying glass that you find. Yes, out. but more importantly, yeah. it's um, it's limiting. So when I put a jeweler's loop up, I'm going to look really, really closely. So the way you use a jeweler's loop is you put it to your eye and then you bring the item up until it comes into focus. And you're getting this okay. very limited frame of view. So it causes students to really focus in. So a student that tends to get distracted really easily, it's intensely focusing. It's magical. You put a jeweler's loop up and you look at your hand. It's crazy. You look at the back of a mushroom. I mean, it's it's like a foreign land. And um, this is another really great tool. Uh, a book I would recommend is The Private Eye. It's an entire curriculum based on using a jeweler's loop to help kids look at items, explore whatever. I mean, it could be a tree. It could be 
a brain specimen, if you're dissecting, that'd be the first thing I'd have them do is look at it through the jeweler's loop before they touch it. And then ask those questions. I notice, I wonder, it reminds me of, what else does it remind me of? And, and keep pushing that reminder question because that develops analogies. And as they explore those analogies and they connect, well, when I look really closely at this um, sponge, it reminds me of this cork and it kind of looks like this structure and this structure. So then as they're older, you can start building. Well, I wonder why they're similar. Could they have a similar use? Is, does that explain why this is structured the same as this other item? Can we infer anything from that? So you get a whole nother level of um, scientific inquiry based on just looking. And then you also get beautiful poetry. <laughs> I mean, you talk about developing metaphors and um, students, you know, when they're looking at, at something really close up and they realize, wow, this shell, it looks like a feather. It looks like a, you know, they, all those connections. And um, so I think that's the best Six, seven dollars you could possibly spend is every student should have a jeweler's loop. Um, so I always have a whole bag of them. Everybody has access to them and we use them all the time. So that would be number one. I love a microscope personally. I mean, my my dad gifted me a microscope when I was probably nine and it was my prized. I had a beautiful wooden box. I kept it in and it, it was very special to me. So I, I think it's it's a fun tool, but I... I don't think you have to break the bank to get a microscope. Um, if you've got a hand lens, you can even stack these. And obviously, you're not going to be looking at um, microscopic types of items. But uh, that up-close observ observing can be really done there. And as far as resources, I just... Oh, I'm trying to remember what it's called. The nature... It's changed names a couple of times, but it's like the standard homeschool science kits sort of. They have a lot of really good um, tools, kits for dissection. If you want to do a dissection, I usually order stuff from them. They have nice little specimens that are affordable, um, that kind of thing. But really a hand lens, a journal and and pencils, I think, are are the top top pieces of equipment in my mind. Thanks. I was listening today. I'm working on a talk by Christine Perrin transcribing it. And it was, she gave it this summer at the conference. It, um, it's talking about giving our children experiences of beauty in nature so that they can make the connections and they can recognize God you know, when you look at something and it reminds you of something else and you re you are, you look at the sky and the fireflies look like the stars and that beauty of connections and how powerful that is, particularly on children, and that it will carry them through life like an apologetic almost for the existence of God and for their faith. And that just sounds like what you're talking about. You know, when you, when you can talk about poetry and nature together and the metaphors that are created and how soul nourishing that is. And it sounds like everything you're doing isn't just so that they can name things so that they can know about the brain, but so that they can be enlarged in their souls and enriched in their, in their minds. 
That's beautiful. Very much so. I, w- I would say beauty is always foremost uh, in my mind. This this year, uh, we open our class each day with um, a poem. Oh, I'm going to blank now. God's grandeur. Oh, Gerard the title, right? Oh, right. God's grandeur. Yeah, Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, glorious. Uh, or no, I'm so sorry. We read, we've read that when we're opening our class with King Fisher's Catch Fire, which is another, because it's in the, oh. the 30 poems, Circe's 30 poems, everyone should memorize. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a beautiful reflection on man and the as the image of God, but it's it's very difficult. And my students struggle with it uh, because it is so metaphorical. I mean, his poetry is just, it's, it's beautiful, but it's difficult. But I feel like we just repeat it every week and, and we, we take a moment to think about it. And, and then my hope is that by the end of the year, yes, those, those images are more connected for them. Um, that, that yes, they, they start to, to those metaphors go into their soul <laughs> and they, um, they connect with them because yes, I think, I mean, I think all of science has to be founded on an understanding of God and who God is and um, and who we are. And if if you don't start with that, you, you end up in places you don't want to be because you don't ever stop to ask, is it a good idea to do this? <laughs> it's just, can we, can we, are we capable? Is man able to build this? Is man able, you know, how far can science go? Um, and without God, we, we don't ask the should it go there. And um, I think if we can equip our students there, that would be more transformational than any anything for um, for our future, I guess, for theirs. Anne-Marie, I, I know you have older kids, too, and uh, who I think have gone on to college, graduated, or are still in there. Um, what have you found as, as a parent and a, a committed classical a parent committed to classical Christian education sending kids off to college um how has this prepared them well for the different kinds of things that they're going to face well so and my kids have taken a very um agriculturally focused path um partly just how they were raised I guess and um their loves so I feel like um you know my two two of mine are, are well one went for an agriculture ag business degree. And then um, my newest student in college right now, she's doing an, an agricultural ag sciences, ag business degree as well. Um, although she wants to study criminal justice. I mean, she wants to be in law enforcement, but she is getting a degree in agricultural business as her foundation <laughs> um, before she goes into law, apparently law enforcement. Um, you know, I think that, I mean, there's always going to be gaps in whatever you do and kids are going to, there are things they won't know going into college and things they'll have to learn and things that, that they would have never learned in school that they have learned. So I, I don't, I don't worry a whole lot about, um, I think the more physical experience they have, the better they are, um, there's a story that uh, I don't remember, probably 
I don't know if Matthew Bianco tells it or Andrew Kern tells it, but about, about a young man who, who struggled through, um, I mean, he was failing, I think it was physics. And I mean, just, they basically labeled him an idiot and he, he took a summer off and went and worked on a farm and came back and suddenly was making top grades, but he had spent all summer you know, shoveling and levering and lifting and 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 you know, having those physical experiences of weight, of of pull, of the the things that these physical concept or these concepts of physics that were beyond him because he'd never physically experienced them. If you don't first have that foundation, it's really hard to to grasp the theory of it. You need to have physically experienced a lot of that. So I feel like, um, you know, they've, they've done fine. There are always areas that, that they struggle in and areas that they excel in. And so I feel, feel pretty good about it. All right. That's good. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what I found. I like the way you said there, there are going to be some things that, that they miss, but there are also going to be some things that they got at home that other kids don't. And, um, and, and being a good student who learns how, who knows how to learn and how to apply themselves will cover a multitude of gaps. Yes, I I feel like um, the two things that have served my students really well in college has been a knowledge of Shakespeare, which shocked me that that (laughs) did as well. I mean, not that Shakespeare wasn't valuable, but that it actually was came in really useful a lot of times in in their studies. And and then, yeah, they're um, they're just their hands on experience of observing, attending, Mm-hmm. And and noticing what's around them. Because again, attention is the foundation of everything. And all of this is building attention. It's it's growing that. So whatever they're studying, they have to attend, right? So if nothing else, you are developing incredible skills of attending. Beautifully said. Helpful. Well, Anne-Marie, thank you so much for, for being here with us again. It's so... It's lovely to have kind of these these bookends, right? We got to hear the foundation for the little ones last time you were here, and I loved hearing you continue that on to give us a really full picture of of what it looks like to keep carrying that through as as the kids get older and to see how some some skills are important to no matter how old they are and and some skills will serve as foundations for things to come and um but ultimately, like you said, is creating an appreciation for beauty for our love for the Lord, for his world, and and for us knowing how to ask good questions. So thank you. Thank you for being with us. And um, until next time, everyone, here's to home. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.